1 Samuel 11. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we'll serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days' respite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter to the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, What's wrong with all the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. And then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there they, there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done evil, all this evil. Do not be afraid. You have, I just read that again. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will forsake his people, will not forsake his people, for his great name's sake, because it had pleased the Lord to make you people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in all the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. This is the word of God. You can be seated. Thank you. I know that may seem like a long passage to ask somebody to read, and it is, uh, but I am committed uh, to you hearing the Word of God directly, and so I appreciate those who are willing to take on a big passage like that uh, and read that for us. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the chance now to come before your Word, um, and we pray, God, for the humility to submit to your Word. Uh, God, we pray that for the receptiveness to receive your word. We pray, God, for a clarity that we would understand your word. 
Uh, and God, we pray for a, a motivation, that we would hear it and obey it, that we would not just be hearers, but we'd be doers. And so, God, we pray uh, for the same Spirit who empowered Saul, the same Spirit uh, who resurrected Christ from the dead, that the same Spirit would be alive and at work in our own hearts and lives today. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. It is uh, football season, from what I hear, from what the televisions are telling us and all those things. And uh, to be honest, I don't keep up with it super closely, but uh, I have noticed something in common. One of the things that happens a lot with, uh, with the television broadcast of a football game, whether it be something like college game day uh, before games or sometimes in the, kind of the opening series of a game, uh, the analyst will make uh, their under, they'll give kind of their, their two cents and they'll say, this is this team's key to the game. If, if they're going to win the game, you know, given their people and their strengths and who they're, the, the, the other team they're going against, the analyst kind of pieces together, here's three to five points about how, we, how this team can succeed. And it'll be things like they got to win the turnover battle or they, they got to win the line of scrimmage or this, this quarterback or this wide receiver, this running back, somebody, their key player, he's got to get off to an early start and, and take command or, or the defense has to, has to uh, you know, really shut down the team less than a certain number of points or a certain number of yards. They, they put a bullet point list up on the, on the screen for us and they say this is their key to the game. This is what they need if they're going to win. 1 Samuel chapter 11 brings us to yet another battle in Israel, yet another time where they are uh, at war, which happens a lot in, these, in 1 and 2 Samuel. And I want to invite you to be the analyst of this, of this battle. If you were, were, were being the, giving the television broadcast for this battle right before it starts, and you had to say, this is the key to the battle. Here, here's the, the three to four bullet points about what Israel has to do if they're going to win. What, what would you say is the key to their battle? And the reason I want to ask you that is that, Lord willing, we're not actually going to have to go to a physical battle, but daily life is a battle, is it not? And all of us have different challenges, different things we face that feel like battles. And, and I'll, I'll put before you that I think the key to Israel's battle is the same key to the battles you face. And, and you may come to the, to the situations that you're going through and, and whether or not you, you know, put them on a telescreen or write them down, you, you have in your mind kind of what the keys are to face the battles that you're going to face. If it's a, if it's a, the, you're thinking about work, you're thinking, hey, we, we just, our, our team, we really got to make a great new hire for our team at work to really succeed and reach that next level. Or uh, we really need to bring on one more good client. And that's the key to our success at, at work. Or, or I've got to get noticed by my boss so I can, if he can just see this part of the work I do, I'll get bumped up. That's the key to my success. Or maybe at home you're thinking, we just need some more sleep. <laughs> That's the key to our success. Or, or I just, we just got to find a way to help the kids learn to listen the first time I say something. If you figure that out, please tell me. I would love that. No, we, we come up with certain things at home and at work, or, or we're, we're, we're trying to figure out how to take care of aging parents, or we're trying to figure out work and home balance. Or whatever it is, the battle's going on in your life, and you're saying, this is the key. You, you, you boil it down, whether or not you, you say it in your mind this way, but you boil down, this is the key to my success. These are the things I need to fall into place for this to work out. As we read through First and Second Samuel, we have plenty of opportunities to analyze their battles. So if we miss the first one, there's always another one coming. 
you can analyze and try to understand. So far, we go back to 1 Samuel chapter 4, they lost one battle, and so they decided the next key was to bring the Ark of the Covenant, to kind of manipulate God's hand, to twist Him to do what they wanted Him to do. And that didn't go so well. 1 Samuel chapter 8, they decided the key to the battle was that they needed an earthly king like the other nations around them. And again, God said, that's not the solution. That's not what it should be. So let me set the stage here in chapter 11 in this battle and see if you can begin to anticipate what the, what the key to the battle is going to be. A king from the, the nation of the Ammonites begins to attack a, a certain town in Israel uh, called Jabesh-Gilead. And the people of that town realize they are completely overmatched. It is not going to go well for them. So they come up with the strategy. They say, hey, stop, stop attacking us. We'll submit to you. Just, just we'll serve you if you'll just, you know, chill out. But Nahash, the king of Ammonites, that wasn't good enough. To be slaves, that wasn't enough for him. He wanted to bring disgrace to the, to the nation of Israel. So he gives them a counteroffer. He says, okay, yes, we won't kill you and you can be our servants, but we have to gouge out all of your right eyes as a way of just bringing horrific, gory shame to the nation of Israel. And so the people of Jabesh-Gilead say, okay, let's, we're going to try to give us seven days and see if we can come up with something. And if not, we'll turn ourselves over to you and you can gouge out our eyes. And so their strategy, they start by going to this, sending out for help. And one of the places they go ask is this new earthly king to his city, to Saul, uh, to the land, to the city of Gibeah. That's, or Gibeah. That's their plan. But from what we know of Saul so far, I mean, that seems like a good idea. Go ask the king for help. But what we've seen of Saul so far is kind of a mixed bag. We're not sure whether this is going to be a good thing for the people of Israel. The first time we met Saul, he was looking for donkeys for like a long time and didn't seem to be able to figure that out. And he didn't really seem to understand Samuel and, and what the things were there with the prophets. And then when Samuel told him he was going to be king, he seemed kind of reluctant to it. In fact, when they finally get to the point and he's appointed as king, he's hiding in the baggage. And he seems to be kind of reluctant about the whole, the whole kingship thing, which... You know, I don't blame him. That seems pretty overwhelming. But we don't look at Saul immediately and say, yes, he's the solution. Basically, all that's been told that's going for him is that he's tall and handsome. That's all we know up to this point. So maybe he's a good guy to go to. But that doesn't seem to be alone the, the key to the battle, just asking for the king. So maybe, maybe the key is for Saul to find a creative way to build a big enough army. And he certainly does that. You read through the story. He takes two oxen chops them up. This is getting gorier as we go, isn't it? He chops up these oxen and sends pieces of them throughout the nation and says, if you don't show up to battle, we're going to do to your oxen like this. And so everybody shows up. But again, we read through the stories in the Bible, just having a bigger army doesn't always mean you win battles. So that doesn't seem to be the solution either. Well, maybe it's just having a good military strategy. And Saul has that. He divides his company up in three groups and they attack before dawn, surprise attack on the Ammonites. That's their strategy. Again, it's important, that's good, but people have good strategies sometimes in the Bible, and they go terribly wrong. So that doesn't seem to be the solution by itself. What is the key to the battle? The key is clear at the beginning of Saul's account in verse 6, that this is what makes all the difference in the battle. Verse 6, it says, And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words. There it is. Whatever other strategy, whatever other number of armies, whatever other plans they come up with, 
God is with them, and that's going to make all the difference in the battle. And that's the key for your battles too. We can have any number of great ideas and strategies and plans, but whatever battle we're facing, here's the, the number one key to the game. Rely on the Lord. Rely on the Lord. I want to make sure you don't miss that these chapters are completely God-focused. He is the key. You can read through and notice the strategy and the numbers and the details of, the, of, the, of, the, of all the battles. But if you miss this, then you've missed the point. God's in charge. His Spirit is what enables the Israelites to have victory. And they have a decisive victory. It is clear. They start before dawn and it says, By the time of the sun is it's hot in the day, they have completely annihilated the, Am the Ammonites. And, and it even it says that no of the ones who lived, they were so scattered, no two of them were left alone, which is the way the Bible's, or no two of them were left together, which is the way the Bible describes complete judgment. They don't even get to be together. They're totally scattered. The few that do survive. And this, uh, uh, the, the king's name is Nahash, which means serpent. And so I think there's an echo here of the man of God crushing the head of the serpent. God's people are winning the battle. That's what's, that's what's going on here. So Saul has won his first battle as king. And, and some of the people want to, to put the naysayers to death. And Saul steps up and he, he knows that the key was God. God was the key. And the reason we, reason we know that, it says in verse 15... Uh, he defends everybody and says, no, 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 not a man shall be put to death this day, for the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Saul knew. It wasn't his strategy. It wasn't his creative kind of gory way of mustering an army that was the decisive factory. It was God. The Spirit of God was at work. He is the solution to the battle. Yes, they had good strategy, but God was the difference. The Spirit moved and that changed everything. On Wednesday night, Aaron reminded us of a theme in 1 Samuel, back in Hannah's prayer in chapter 2, in verse 9, we read, For not by might shall a man prevail. Strength alone does not win your battles. You cannot just win your battles just by trying harder, just by mustering up enough energy. God is in charge of the battle. Rely on the Spirit. We are just as dependent as Israel was. We are just as dependent as Saul was. No matter how big or small our battle is, God's in charge of it. Rely on Him. Do, do you see that in your life? Do you, do you come to your battles for the different obstacles you face and say, I, I can handle this one. I, I got this one on my own. Or are we willing to be honest and submit all of them to God and say, God, if you don't move, I cannot win this battle. Last week we were thinking about our time with the cooks. And like Brad said a minute ago, we, we, had, just, we had made this great plan about how the cooks were going to go and we're going to show up. And there were so many different pieces of, that, of our trip that, that we just didn't know were going to happen the way they were. And we look back and go, the heart, the heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. God's in charge of the battles. God's in control. The Lord is the one who makes the difference. So who are you relying on? Where is your trust? Where is your focus? Where is your heart in your battles? Are we stressed at trying to make something happen? Are we beating our heads against the walls trying to say, I, I got to come up with a new strategy. I got to do this. I got to do that. Certainly God can use our minds and plans and, and hard work, and he does. But the key is not those things. The key is the spirit. The key is relying on God to be at work in us, to change us so that we can be ready for the battle. What would it look like in your life if we truly relied on the Lord? What would it do to your prayer life? What would it do to, to the way you sleep? 
What would it do to the way you, you worry and stress if we were truly, fully dependent upon the Lord? God just might decide to win the battle for us sometimes. And the reason, when He does, the way you know that you give Him the, the way you know that it was the Spirit, or because you know it's the Spirit, you should turn and give Him the credit, like Saul does. When he, does, when he gets the victory, he also gets the credit. In moments like that, when we show, see God show up, it's a good reminder. And it can be humbling, right? It can be so humbling. We plan something. It doesn't go the way we want it to. We don't think we're ready, and God makes it work. We say, God, yeah, God is in control. It's humbling. And we submit to Him. We, we remember it's all, it's all Him. And when we're reminded of that, it's a good time for us to stop and refocus on the Lord. And that's exactly what the nation of Israel does after this. The very next thing that happens after this story is that they recommit themselves to the Lord. And we'd be wise to do the same. Rely on the Lord and recommit to the Lord. Right after they win the battle, we read where Samuel, the prophet, says, Come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. It's in verse 15. So all the people went to Gilgal and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. Now Saul had already been appointed king. But this is the moment where the nation kind of unifies. They're all together. They're all coming together to, to underneath this one king. But why am I saying they're recommitting to the Lord as opposed to recommitting to Saul? Didn't I just say they made Saul king? Yes. What did they do when they got there? Verse 15 continues. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. They are crowning Saul, but they're worshiping the Lord. The people of Israel recognize it wasn't Saul alone who, who won this battle. God won it. God won the battle. And so they, as they rely on him, they are now coming before God and recommitting themselves to them. Samuel's, the, the chapter 12 is, is a speech from, from Samuel, the prophet, and this kind of partners with that coronation. The coronation is a, a visible worship, an example of coming to recommit themselves to the Lord, and Samuel's speech is, is an invitation, an instruction, an exhortation to do just that, to recommit ourselves to the Lord. This is a, a common practice in the Bible. You read through the Old Testament, read through times, the ups and downs of the people of Israel, you find this repeated theme where people, for any number of reasons, have to come back and recommit themselves to the Lord. So that's my, my call to you today. If you can see your battles are not your own, if you can see the Spirit is in charge, that He is the one who gives the victory, then will you bring your, come before the Lord, can commit your heart to the Lord in a new way today? Maybe, has, maybe God has shown up for you recently. Maybe you've, you've been going through a battle and you can point to something and say, this this is where I needed God to come through, and He did. He delivered me. He brought salvation. He brought healing. He brought a job. He brought reconciliation. This is where God has shown up. If so, have you stopped long enough to turn and give Him the praise He deserves and recommit your life to Him in that way? There are other times in the Bible where big losses are what leads to people being recommitted to the Lord. They recognize their sin. Are you in a time of conviction? or a time of drought, a time of frustration. Maybe that God is using discipline or just the hardships of the world to say, you need the Lord to invite you to recommit yourself into Him. Good times or bad times. We also see in the Bible there are regularly scheduled times in the calendar to recommit themselves to the Lord, like Passover in the Old Testament. I think there is a good and healthy reason to just periodically according to the calendar. Maybe the fall is a kind of a new start for you, new rhythms, new routines, getting back into to programs. What, where, what, as you're filling out your calendar, making kids' plans and whatever else plans you, where is your heart with the Lord? Are you committed your, committing yourself to the Lord in this season of life? But the Bible actually does it more often than just every period, you know, when things are good, bad, or every Passover. What is the Sabbath 
if it's not a time to recommit yourself to the Lord. So it is that we gather here for worship. We do this not because of some law, but because we want to say time, week in and week out, God, we are committed to you. We are committing to you. We rely on you and we are committed to you. But if I'm honest, I can't go a full seven days. <laughs> what, is, what is it in the morning that we have except for an opportunity to wake up and say, God, I need you for this day. Not just the whole week. I need you for this every single day. Every day is an opportunity to recommit yourself, to say, God, I'm here for you. And what we have here in, in Saul's coronation and then Samuel's speech is, a, is a, an explanation or an example and an explanation of what that might look like. And the first thing we read is that it's joy. Coming to the Lord is not a somber thing. It is a celebration. Chapter 11, verse 15, we read that as they worshiped, there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Coming back to the Lord is a great joy. It is a time of celebration, of saying, He is King, He is Lord, He is in charge, and I'm submitting my life to you. What greater comfort and joy and peace is there than to know that the Lord who reigns over all the universe is also in charge of my life, and I'm His child, and He is my Father. It's a celebration, and it's a celebration that demands a proclamation of the good news, which I think is why Samuel does this. He, he's, he's just, he just can't help it. He's going to share. He's going to proclaim the goodness of of God. He gives a, a testimony, a proclamation of the events in history in the past and a challenge for what's to come in the future. And a major part of what he does is he wants to invite us to consider the great things God has done. When we recommit ourselves to the Lord, what we do when we come on Sundays, we proclaim God's Word. Day in and day out, when you're reading God's Word, what are you looking for? You're looking for who is God? What has He done? And in your own life, maybe you keep a journal or maybe just other ways of remembering what has God done for me? He's done so many good things. Do you keep those things before you? Verses 6 to 13, it's exactly what Samuel does for us. He reminds us of God's incredible providence and power and grace all the way back to Aaron and Moses, where God delivered the people out of slavery, out of Egypt, and brought them to the promised land. He is good and he is righteous. He says, our ancestors were enslaved and God brought them freedom. He did the same thing over and over again through the period of Judges he, he names people like Jeroboam and Barak and Jephthah and others where God continues to bring deliverance for His people. This is the character of God. He loves to do good things for His people. He loves to bring salvation to His people. Do you take the time to stop periodically and celebrate the goodness of God? Do you take the time to search the Scriptures to be reminded of the character of God, the nature of God, and what He has done for you. Are you reminded of how awesome our God is? Be, being back in, in Halitla is always a, a reminder to me of the greatness of God. Because the very first time I was there, it was the summer of 2018. That's before I was, at, I was here at Infinity. And the only reason I was there is because I happened to bump into Daryl Rooks, who's in charge of the Master's Mission. And I asked him about, about missions. And he connected me with this guy I had never met before named Alex Cook. And he said, hey, this guy is working on a new mission project in somewhere in rural Mexico. You might be interested in contacting him. So I called him. We met together. And we decided to plan a mission trip together, even though we just met. And so we, the first time I had been to Halitla, so before we knew the Watsons, before I knew Infinity Church even existed, where, where Alex and I went there in 20, summer of 2018. And God used that relationship and that trip and all those things to bring in any number of amazing things that have happened, but also including me coming to Infinity, the Cook family's leaving Infinity, going to the to mission field, 
So many great things that have come. And as I look back, every time I'm in that city, I'm like, wow, all that God has brought through His great providence, I'm reminded time and time again. And I want to come back and praise God over and over for the goodness of His nature and His grace. As we recognize His, his greatness and His grace, surely we also pretty quickly see the contrast between Him and us. And that's Samuel's other message here. As he reminds us of the goodness of God, he says, you see how good he is, even though we are not. He is faithful even when we are faithless. Verse 9, he says, but they forgot the Lord their God. And that is just a, a, an incredibly strong language there. You forgot God. Like, he's God. How do you forget God? And yet, we do that, don't we? We all forget him. Verse 12, Samuel tells them, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was a king. He was telling them, you've sinned and sinned and sinned. And so he's inviting them to confess. If we're going to commit ourselves to God and recommit ourselves to God, we have to recognize the wickedness of our own heart and confess that before him. Chapter 12, verse 9, the people do respond by the end of this and say, we have added to all of our sins this evil to ask for a king. Are we willing to admit we mess up? Are we willing to admit that God is great and we are not, that we have rebelled against Him, can we confess that to Him? Sometimes acknowledging our own failures can be hard. We don't like to admit that we're wrong. It isn't, it's not fun. We want to justify or defend or deflect, but we've got to be honest about the condition of our own heart if we're really giving our heart over to God, if we're really committing ourselves to Him. Samuel is essentially giving a, a collective testimony for God's people. He's testifying about the goodness of God in our sin his grace to bring us back to Him. And He's saying this is the testimony, this is the, the proclamation of the goodness of God in the middle of your hard things. I, I wonder if you've, if you've given a testimony like this before. This past week, again in Mexico, we were, I, I was so moved by just so many different people. I got to hear their testimonies. But uh, a couple I wanted to share with you. There was, there was a guy from Alabama who's there. Uh, his name is Mike. And he's probably, I don't know, in his 60s or so. He works an electrician, was helping out with some construction things. But the Watsons pulled him up one day to, to share a testimony. And I, I didn't know Mike, but he, he had a paper in his hand, and I could tell he was shaking a little bit. I was like, maybe he's a little bit nervous. And I talked to him later on, and he, he did a great job, shared what God's done in his life. And I talked to him later on. That was the very first time he's ever stood in front of a crowd and shared his testimony. He did an amazing job. Just a couple days later, I got to see somebody else give their testimony for the very first time. This guy's name is Paco. He's in his mid-20s, early 20s probably. And he is just a few weeks out of a three-month rehab, drug and alcohol rehab program. And as he came out of that, and he came to support the, the work at the Watson's Ranch, and he hiked with us for, I don't know, three hours, whatever it was, up this mountain. He's standing there before this, this very rural village, and he's talking about how God brought him out of his addictions, brought him out of his pains. And again, he's nervous, he's shaking, you know, with his Bible. But he's, he's telling of the goodness of God. He's willing to stand up and say, I was a sinner God saved me. God's amazing. And I just wonder, as we read Samuel do that, as I hear people like Mike and Paco do that, I just wonder, are you sharing your testimony? Are you telling people about the goodness of God? Are you willing to admit your sin and your failures? Are you willing to say, God is good and I need Him? There, there is a, 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 just a, a deep level that we just, it just feels right. And when we do that, when we share it, there's this joy of saying, that, yes, this is true. And by sharing it, we're recommitting. By sharing it, we're saying, you can hold me accountable to this because this is who I believe in. And I want you to believe in him too. And it's a way of proclaiming. It's a way of admitting it, declaring the goodness of God. Will you share? 
Will you share? Will you recommit yourself in such a way that you'll share the goodness of God? And as you do, you're going you're gonna to want to follow Him. You're going to want to obey Him, which is exactly what Samuel calls us to do. He gives a challenge to the Israelites. He says in verse 14 and 15, If you will fear the Lord and serve Him and obey Him, it will be well. But if you will not, then the hand of the Lord will come against you and your king. Coming back to God is not just a, a tip of the hat to God. It's saying, I'm turning my life into you. I want to follow you with my life. And he's inviting us. He's inviting us to follow him. 20 and 21 again, he says, Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with your whole heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. He warns them, this is the temptation of your heart. Yes, right now you can see God is good, but the temptation is to go after other things. You want to come and submit yourself to the Lord. That's great. Be aware of the temptations around us. Your heart is going to be drawn to other things, whether it be careers, family, success, pleasures, possessions. They can all be good things, but if our heart is in those things more than they're in God, those things are going to be empty. They will not satisfy us. He says we have to have a wholehearted devotion. Serve the Lord with all your heart. If you know the, the Bible, when it talks about the heart, it's not talking about the organ in your chest, of course. It's talking about the deep core of who you are. Deeply at the very foundation of your life, what matters most to you? At the core of your, your, your emotions and desires, your affections, what do you love more than anything else in this world? If it's anything other than God is an idol, if God is not at the very core of who you are, if He's not the one that you admire and desire and love more than anything else, then you do not really know Him. You do not really know Him. So He's reminding us that our heart, our, the very core of who we are, that's what God's asking for, to be given over to God. So many times our motives can be twisted. We can do good things. We can serve people, encourage people, do, do, go on mission trips, preach the gospel. Sometimes we can do that from the wrong motivations. So He's saying, check your heart. When you recommit yourself to God, confess our sins, and turn our whole heart into God. Now, depending on your upbringing, this whole language of, of recommittal, may, may be, you may be uh, nervous about that. Different times in churches and groups kind of put a really strong emphasis on this, like, uh, uh, we'll say recommit, like rededicate, rededicate your life. And there can be a, a culture of saying every Sunday you got to rededicate your life, and it can give you this sense of like, I, I'm not really saved because I didn't rededicate my life today. And can give you this, this lack of assurance of your salvation. So just to be clear, that's not, not what we're challenging here today. What we're doing is trying to be clear from the Bible to say over and over again, God's people are called to see their sin, see the greatness of God, repent of sin, and trust in Him. It's not a matter of redoing our salvation. You're saved once and for all. Doesn't, we don't redo that. What we do is we say, God, I, I need you today. You saved me then, and you're continuing to save me day by day, and I want to continue to trust in Him. For other people, language of recommittal can, can be a little bit self-defeating. You say, I tried that like a hundred times, and I'm still stuck in a rut. And I failed, and I failed, and I failed. And, and that can be discouraging to say, I come before the Lord, and I, I turned myself into Him, and I, I, was, I was sold out for a little while, and then I failed again. Listen, until Christ comes, that's probably going to keep happening to some degree or another. We pray that by God's grace, our falls will be less frequent and less hard we wouldn't fall quite as hard as we did. But what we pray for by His grace is not just that, yes, we would love to stop falling. That probably won't happen. What we pray for is that we don't stop getting back up. You know what I mean? 
that we keep recommitting. We keep turning our lives into God and saying, I'm here to worship Him. We may fall, but God, by His grace, continues to pick us back up. Samuel finishes out his, his message by, by proclaiming how great God is, and he does it with an, an incredible sign. He says, it's the time of the wheat harvest, and yet God's going to bring a, a thunder and a rain, which the equivalent would be like somebody in the 4th of July standing outside in South Carolina and saying, I know it's 4th of July, but God's going to send the snow. And God answers his prayer. He brings a thunder and a rain, and that's when the people confess and say, yep, God is in charge. He is Lord, and they worship him. And then he summarizes the way that, the way that God works, and he gives them this one, he summarizes this, but he gives them this one verse that, that I want to charge you with in verse 22 that I think is the, the, the best news of all. He says this, The Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. So here's my charge to you today. As you rely on the Lord and recommit yourself to the Lord, this is the good news. Do not forsake the Lord because He will not forsake you. The foundation of our hope, the foundation of our joy, the foundation of our assurance is not in our strength to get back up ourselves. It's not in our strength to recommit ourselves every time we sin. The foundation of our joy, assurance, pleasure in the Lord, our hope in the Lord is that God doesn't forsake His people. Praise God that He does not forsake His people. It can be so easy to think, I've gone too far. I, I've done too much. Just read the Bible. Keep reading through 1 and 2 Samuel. People do all kinds of terrible things. And yet God continues to pursue them in His grace because He has promised not to forsake us. The Israelites have just sinned against God. Like it is fresh. They just asked for a king. And by God's grace, I mean, how much credible is this grace? God should have been so offended that they asked for a king to replace him. And yet God used that king to win the battle. That's grace. That is abundant grace. And we serve the same God who sees us in our sin and yet continues to pursue us, not forsake us. We don't have to live in our past sin and say, this is going to keep me from God forever. No, God will not forsake us. So we can repent of it, we can turn, and we can follow Him in simple obedience. Do you recognize that when God sees you, if you're His child, if you have turned from your sin, if you put your faith in Jesus, when He sees you, He's not begrudgingly like accepting of you. He takes joy in you. Did you hear verse 22? It has pleased that is, it is delighted. It is God's joy. It has pleased the Lord to make you a people for Himself. He delights. He takes pleasure in having sons and daughters of humanity. That you are His children. Can you imagine that? That you bring not just like a ho-hum spirit to God, but that He takes delight in you. That's the joy of knowing Him. That's the joy of having a relationship with Him, that He is your Father. He loves you and He cares for you. And He is committed for His name's sake to not forsake you. For the Lord will not forsake you for His great name's sake. God has said He's putting His reputation on the line. His reputation is on the line for redeeming and restoring a people, molding them, shaping them into the image of His Son, making them a nation and a people for Himself,
And he's telling them, I'm going to put my name on the, on the line. That his name, his glory will depend on him redeeming a people for himself. He wants the world to know how great his grace is. And so he is going to keep pursuing you over and over again. That's what motivates our obedience. That's where the Spirit moves to change us and shape us into the image of Christ. That's what changes our lives, is when we recognize He delights in us. And for His name's sake, He will not forsake us. And God was willing to go to great lengths to prove that for us. Because the truth is, we deserve to be forsaken, do we not? We deserve the wrath of God. And yet God, in His grace, was so willing to defend His glory that He sent His only Son who came and lived the only, for the first time in history. Somebody lived and did not deserve to be forsaken. And yet He was willing to go to the cross. And what did He say on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus took the forsakenness of the Father so that for all of eternity, you and I as His children can rest in this, that God will not forsake us. He has poured out His forsakenness. He has poured out His wrath on His Son, so that you and I can rest in this promise. The Lord will not forsake us. That's the good news. That's the grace. That's the gospel. And that's our assurance today. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word, the testimony of Your grace, the incredible power of Your salvation for a people who are so undeserving. Lord, we see that in 1 Samuel and we see that in our own lives. Lord, we do not deserve your grace. And yet you've continued to pursue us time and time again. God, we praise you and thank you for showing us your love, for showing us your mercy, for showing us your power and your great grace. God, we pray that your spirit would so be at work in our lives today that we would see you for who you are. We'd see your commitment to your glory, your joy in us as your people, your power over all things. And God, that those things would so, so change us that we want to turn our lives into you. We want to rely on you. We want to commit ourselves to you in a new way today. Father, we admit that we've done that a lot of times before, that we've, we, we feel like we've repented, and yet we continue to stumble back into sin. So God, we come fresh and humble today to say we, we're turning it all over to you again. And we need you. We need you to change us. We need you to make the difference in our lives. We need you to pick us back up again. And so Lord, thank you that because of what you've done through your son Jesus, you're there for us. You hear our prayers. You, change, you forgive us our sins. And you change our hearts. Lord, bless us as we sing and worship. We surrender it all to you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.